Hi, this is Christy with Life Struggles. And today we're going to talk to Tony. Tony has been on several podcasts and she's got an amazing story. I don't even want to go into parts of it because it's so exciting and it's so informative. And so I'm just going to go ahead and say, welcome, Tony. Hi Thank there. you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's honestly an honor to have been asked to speak with you. And I'm just so grateful to be here. So thank you. Thank you. And I'm so glad that we finally got this together. It was, it was, a, it was very difficult to anyone watching. My electricity went off last night. Mm -hmm. um, it's a thing that happens in South Africa. And we couldn't do the interview until now. So I'm so grateful to be here. So I don't want you to feel bad because the last one that I did that I just published, she actually, you know, and she was in the U.S., um, but they, during, during, right in the middle of our podcast, a huge storm came through and she lost her electricity. So <laughs> you don't have to just have it turned off. <laughs> it went off and, and her, yeah, and her computer was not charged and it was dark. So there was no lights. So we had to, I had to pause the recording and we have to read you know, we have to do the second part next week. So it happens. It yeah. does. It does. Okay. So what's, first of all, I went back and I, I, I watched your YouTubes, which by the way, I have a YouTube channel too. Um, but we, I did watch your YouTubes. I love the fact that you started journaling early and that you shared those. So can you start with like how old you were when you started writing and why you think you started writing? Of course, of course. You know, I have, I've been writing my whole life. So I think I remember being a really young kid about eight or nine and I asked my mom to go get me a journal and I just started writing my days. And I think even as a kid, I used it as a form of therapy. Um, I was being bullied a lot as a young child. And I think I used my journals as a form of escapism. I would write down what was happening that day and how people were treating me. And I think it gave me a way to, to unpack everything that was happening to me and just and understand it a bit more. And then I stopped writing up until I, I kept doing it on and off, writing in little journals here and then. And then when I started high school, just before high school, when I was 12 years old, I started writing every, just about every single day up until the age of 33. Wow. And for me, it, yeah, it, it, it was, it was therapy for me. I also find, however, that I did use it as a form of self-harm at one point. The journal? Because I was, yeah, I, when I struggled with, the anorexia and I struggled with that from a young age I would journal about it non-stop as a form to almost encourage myself to continue on that path which is which is the nature of, of anorexia of that kind of eating disorder it's you feel like you're a slave to it and the only way to keep going is to focus in on it as much as you can and make it your entire life and by writing it down I feel like I fueled my own illness 
and it was a way of the Ill, uh, for the illness, the voice in my head to stay alive. So I do think it was actually a self-harm at one point. And then when I worked, started to try work through it, it, um, it got better. It got better when I stopped writing about it so much in the journal, the eating disorder side of things. But I definitely used it as a form of self-harm at one point. Like, um, I don't know if you know about um, pro-anorexic websites from back in the day. They used to be these websites where people who are struggling with an eating disorder would go on and see photos of stick-thin men and women and see music that was about eating disorders. And they used it as a form of thinspiration. That's what it was called back then. Mm -hmm horrible toxic toxic thing on the internet and I feel like I use my journal as that before that even existed because this was before the era of Facebook before the era of Tumblr I feel like it's innate in an eating disorder to inspire yourself to try keep the illness going okay so I have two questions I want to ask you first number one eight years old is pretty young to think I, like where did you even come up with this idea that I'm going to start writing to help me feel better like did you hear that from I, somebody or I did I did my dad my father used to actually write music he just songs you know when he was younger and he used to tell me about that now what he also told me was that his mother who wasn't it wasn't a very nice woman at all took his writing from him and his guitar and told him he mustn't do that. Um, and I remember him saying that to me. And I think it, it stuck with me. I was like, if that was something important to him, I should, should try it. So also when I was very young, I was drawing a lot. I was a very creative child. And so I would have pages and pages of paper where I was just drawing and drawing and drawing. And then that became writing and using words. And I feel like it was just a part of me always it was just my creative outlet and I felt like writing you know I felt like I was good at writing and it was one thing I was good at and one thing I was confident with so I focused in on it even you know I knew it was making me feel better and I also felt like I was good at it so it's something I honed and and just zoned in on from a very early age Okay. So then the other thing is, so, and, and I want you to go into the anorexia, but I, I wanted to share with you, and I don't know if this really compares to what you were going through, but I had a very high metabolism when I was at the age where you were going through this anorexia. And I was very skinny, no matter how much I ate, I was very skinny. And I don't think people realize how much damage they can do. But I remember we came from a very large family and we would go to like on the weekends, you know, to, my mom had uh, 13 brothers and sisters. Oh, and, wow. and that was like our groups that, you know, we, you know, and my cousins that we hung out with my aunts, my uncles and stuff um, for every holiday, every birthday you know, all that stuff. And every time my aunts saw me, they'd go, Ooh, you're so skinny. When you say something like that tone of voice, that was 
it could have been, I could have taken it like if somebody was heavy, like, ooh, you're, mm-hmm. you're so fat. But it was a negative remark, period. It was never, oh, you look good. It was never, you're pretty. It was, oh, you're so skinny. You need to start eating. And I was always yeah. defending myself because I ate all the time. But I was super skinny at so by my freshman year in high school, um, I was five, seven and a half, and I weighed right at a hundred pounds. So, and it didn't matter what I ate. Now, finally that changed, but I had at least seven to eight years of being told, ew, you're so skinny. That's not anorexic. But it was very damaging to me. So go ahead. I think, I think no matter what body you're in, no matter what size you are, no, it, if people focus in on your body, if people speak about your body, either neg- it doesn't even matter whether negative or positive, it impacts you. It impacts you heavily and you hold on to that kind of stuff. So with your aunties coming up to you and saying that, you know, I'm pretty sure this is how it was said. It's like, oh, my God, you're so skinny. We better get some meat on those bones. Who's feeding you? We want to feed you. And that kind of stuff sticks with you because in that moment, you're like, this is how they see me. This is how Mm -hmm. they recognize me. Mm -hmm. And our subconscious says next time they see me, they're going to look at my body. That's all they're looking at. And it's so, so easy for us to become obsessed with that because we're being identified by that. So whether it brings anorexia, self-esteem issues, binge eating, it brings something with it. And that's why it's so important that we don't make those kinds of comments, especially as adults to children, to children. which I feel is yes. what, yeah. What's uh, that and, and that's what I was going to ask you. So do you have children? I don't. You don't. don't. Okay. Um, I have been, because of that, very careful. First of all, I don't know why people can't just focus on who we are as a person. You know, I don't care what we look like on the outside. If we have this beautiful soul, this beautiful heart, you know, to me, I can see the most beautiful woman or the most handsome man, and they can open their mouth and speak and they're assholes you know, are they bitches? And that changes totally what they look like to me. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so really I've been like, I've been trying to teach my kids, even though I tell them the truth, if they say, Hey, what do you think this looks like? Or, you know, my, my son works out a lot and he'll say, look, mom, you know, how, how do my muscles look and how does my stomach look? And I'm like, you know, it's, it's looking good, but why are you focusing so much on that? Not, not that it's, uh, you know, I want him to be healthy and that's fine. And I'm glad that he's got a goal, but you've got this beautiful personality and just the sweetest, kindest person focus on staying that person. That's what I try to do doesn't mean that it always works because I still always get mom what do you think from either one of my kids and which they're both exactly. adults now adult children but they still ask my opinion anyway so I do try to focus on that but did your 
did your parents like did they know you were going through this and so I come from a really really attractive family so my mom is a beautiful like really really beautiful woman and my dad was a really handsome man and he came from like a family of handsome people so I was kind of born into a, a kind of societal pressure and mm-hmm. community pressure so everyone would say things like uh, your mom is so beautiful your mom is so beautiful you know and it would affect me because I didn't feel like I was living up to the expectation of her and a lot of her friends were the ones that bullied me well only one friend of hers I should say and she made me feel like I was less than my mother I was less than my family I was less than the people I kind of came from and she would say things like you know your 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 hair's too curly your nose is too big um your lips are too big your skin is too dark, like things like that. She would say to me, and this I was a grown to ask woman. you about that. Did your mom hear yeah. her saying those things? So a lot of people, and I actually, I'm so happy that this came up because a lot of people have asked me about this. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you get into that mindset. I really do want to defend my mom in this situation, but she did drop the ball and she knows she did. She was, so just to give everyone more of an understanding of it, my parents were in a very, very toxic relationship themselves. And then this outside woman came in and she interfered with my parents' marriage in the, in the way that she would say things about my dad to my mom, things to my dad about my mom, and get really heavily involved in our lives. And my mom allowed that space. My dad put his foot down um, in regards to that. And I think my mom was scared of her. I think mm. if I think of how she, how old she must have been then, she was probably 30 something. And I feel like she was in this friendship that was qu- quite abusive. And from what I remember, she did stand up for me a lot, but she could have done a lot more and she should have removed that woman from our removed life. The relationship. And it's a very long time. Yeah. She, that, she, that woman was toxic. She was horrific. You know, I made, I I started speaking about what happened when I was reading through the journals and I've never said her name. I've never said who she is. And I got three messages, three messages from girls I went to primary, well, a junior school with. And they messaged me and said, I know who you're talking about. They never said names. And they said she did exactly the same thing to me. Really? She must have a problem with her own self-esteem. You know, because a lot of people that have a problem with self-esteem will put other people down to make themselves feel better. Yeah, especially children, because we're Mm -hmm. so vulnerable to it. And it's it's we're like sponges. And what she said to me, I soaked it in and I soaked it in. And my mom really should have stepped up to the plate on that one. And we have discussed it and we have worked through a lot of it. I also understand a lot of the stuff my mom was going through then. And I have a lot of empathy for what she was going through then. And I can understand how that got missed. Right. To and you a, know, to you're a saying that, you know, your parents were going through their own thing and whatever. I, I know a lot of people like to put back our traumas on our parents, but I feel like like my parents and and they went through a toxic relationship too, but I still feel like they did the 
best they could at the time for us and what they thought was best for us. And it might not have been the perfect thing, but who's perfect, you know? Exactly. Um, but I don't, I don't blame them. Yeah. You know, for, for, I had for a lot them. of, I had a lot of resentment to my mom about that a lot. Did you? I really did. Um, yeah, very much so. And, you know, I used to, you know, as a drug addict, you get very manipulative. And when I was in active addiction, I would always throw that in my mom's face. I would be like, you were a bad mom because you allowed this to happen in my life. And I did use it um, to hurt her instead of, well, that's what we do when we're on drugs, you know. But I had the opportunity to sit down with her and unpack it. I had the opportunity to speak to my dad about it. He was he hated that woman. He hated that woman. Um, and I was able to her find from coming in, huh? Oh, he sorry. He couldn't stop her from coming in, no. He tried. He tried. So what happened was he did ban her from my home. He actually ended up banning her from coming to the house. And my mom was so defiant of him. Um, and this woman had managed also to convince her. My dad had a very big anger issues. Uh, never, never physically abusive at all. But he had a lot of anger. And I think this woman managed to make my mom misinterpret the situation like he was trying to protect me and this woman and my mom at the same time were so toxic together that my mom thought he was trying to isolate her from that woman and it was actually just a means to protect the family so then we would end up going to her house when she wasn't allowed to come to our house oh oh not good okay yeah so anorexic turned into what so the anorexia started when I was very young. So I had body dysmorphic disorder from the age of nine. And it was when I met this woman. I think I had it before, but I think she promoted it and brought it out of me a lot more. And I struggled with that all from the age of nine up until now. I still struggle with body dysmorphic disorder. Anorexia started 12, 13. And that lasted until three years ago. But... That in lasted between, until three years ago? Wow. Three and a half years ago. Damage, doesn't it? Does it do a lot of damage to your body? You know, you know, before we started, you said that my hair looks nice. Yeah. It, it took three years nice. for my hair to regrow. It fell out completely after years and years of what I put my body through. Um, I have now got osteoarthritis, which is from the anorexia, I am struggling with autoimmune issues like that have been propelled by the anorexia. And it has a long-term health effect on our bodies. My teeth, I just, my, my body is battling. It's battling from what I put it through, from what the disease put it through. So did you suffer with um, bulimia too? I did. Okay. So what happened was... Just for the, the audience, could you explain okay, the yeah. difference between the two of them? I, I'm so sure anorexia, most people know, but. No, it is. It's important to uh, distinguish between the two. So anorexia is restriction. So it's restriction of food. It's restriction of um, nutrients into your body. And it's starvation. It's, a, it's starvation. Whereas bulimia, which can be a part of anorexia. So for me, I would restrict and then my body would become so tired and my brain would become so depleted that I'd eat 
but I wouldn't be able to stop eating. And I'd eat and eat and eat. It would be this binge. Then I would go and I would purge. So anorexia is the restriction and bulimia is the binge eating or even eating a little bit and then going to purge it out, make yourself throw up, whether it be through vomiting, laxative abuse or exercise. Okay. Okay. So didn't you get like hunger pains? I like get hungry. Your your body kind of, and I, I always try to describe it like this because I for so long thought those feelings were normal. Like I normalized it so much in my life from such an early age that I almost became used to it. I remember saying once, to someone you know when your back gets sore every day and they were like what do you mean so I was like you know you're sore back every single day and they're like that's not a normal thing not everyone has a sore back every single day right and I was like oh wow these feelings not everyone else is feeling it's just because I've normalized it within myself over such a long period of time that I've been conditioned to think that this is how human beings uh, function like it's normal to struggle to get down a flight of stairs. Okay. So you were just weak. I was weak. I, it was like I had brain fog a lot of the time. I was functioning on cigarettes and I would have kind of foods I felt safe with. So I would do something like I I created these little habits for myself so I would starve myself and then I would say to put my mom at ease I'd be like give I'll have some sweets I'll have some marshmallows and I'll have pasta so I'd eat that and then I would keep eating that and keep eating that and then I would go and I would throw it up and I'd try do that secretly because my mom found out I was doing it you know you can't really hide that for so long so I'd figure out ways around it so she wouldn't find out like I would take packets uh plastic packets to my room and throw up in my bed in the packet and then get rid of the packet the next day just to try hide everything and that became normal for me and I was constantly sick I was my throat was always sore it was this pain you can't describe my face was always swollen. Um, my stomach was always sore. I was always bloated. It like creates this bloat in you. And I was just never comfortable, ever. That, so when we see starving children in different countries, you know, their stomach is very bloated. And I've had to explain that to my kids why that happens. So I yeah. understand that. So then it makes you look fat and then you probably go back to <laughs> not eating again. Exactly. It's a constant, constant cool. cycle. Mm-hmm. No matter what happens, like eating disorders are so tricky because anything that can be said to you or anything you look at can trigger you. So if someone gives you a compliment, your eating disorder mind can take it as a negative and then feel the illness further. So for example, if someone says you're looking healthy, you know, you're looking beautiful. When I was anorexic, that to me means I'm failing. They're telling me I'm looking healthy. I failed. Next time I see them, I better look unhealthy. 
and it just perpetuates this action, this behavioral disorder, this mental illness. And a lot of people aren't educated around that, around why if someone is struggling with an eating disorder to not mention looks and to not mention food, just to be present with them and speak to them about their normal day-to-day lives because you need to normalize food. You need to normalize weight without making it the primary focus of a conversation. So if somebody's telling you you're looking healthy, you would actually take that as a negative? Yeah, well, obviously not now, <laughs> but in, when I was struggling. Then. Oh, absolutely. It was the word, it's the most triggering thing to say to someone and people do it out of the goodness of their hearts. No mm. one has ill intent behind it. But the eating disordered mind will take that as a complete and utter slap in the face and insult and use it to fuel itself. Eat, but you can't win either way. So if someone says to you, you're looking healthy, you've gained a little bit of weight, I'm proud of you, your mind sees that as negative. But if someone says to you, oh my God, I'm so worried about you, you've lost weight, um, you've gone so thin, that will be seen as this person has already noticed my weight. This person has noticed I've lost weight, which means next time I see that person, I better lose more weight because if they see I've gained weight, they're going to comment on that. So right. it's a lose-lose no matter what. Right. Okay. So, so we went through that for a long time, but then you had a drug addiction too? Yes, I did. So. Yes, very. So alcohol, um, I always had a problem with alcohol, even when in high school. When was that introduced into your life? When I was about 12, 13 years old. So I come from a Jewish family. Okay. And, you know, we grew up with bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. It was very normal for people to drink at those. And, you know, a parent would give you a sip here and then, and it's cultural. It's cultural. Sure. So I would have a sip here and there, and then it becomes just normalized, you know, And we would start going to parties and start clubbing when we were about 14 years old. You know, we'd sneak into clubs, get fake IDs and go to house parties. And parents would give us alcohol. Not my parents. My parents never gave me alcohol, except at my brother's bar mitzvah. (laughs) But other people's parents would. There was always alcohol available. but It was never hard to get hold of. And I started drinking at a young age and I started blacking out at a young age. I never knew how to control my drinking ever. I've never been known. I've never known how to. And then obviously oh, when I, I got older you, and I sorry. went to university. Are, are you in university? Are you um, an only daughter? You didn't, do you have? Oh sisters? no, I've got a brother. But no, I said daughter. So you're the only girl. Yes, I am. I am. But um, I grew up with my three cousins or girls who were basic. They are like my sisters. So there's three girls and one one boy. But they didn't. We know we lived around the corner from each other, though. Okay. The reason I asked that was because you obviously then had a room by yourself and you could shut the door and, and like hide some of this stuff. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Let me clarify that. Exactly. Yes. So I was, I was very, it was just me and my brother at home, had my own room. And behind that door, I could, I could hide. I could lie. I could, you know, create a space for myself that promoted everything I was struggling with. 
And so the drinking got out of hand at a young age. And then in university, you know, we can drink from the age of 18 here legally. So it was just, it was chaos. And I studied drama. So at the drama department, at the theater, there was a bar. We used to drink there all the time, used to go partying all the time. And that became a massive part of my life. Then when I started drinking heavily, I started to make a lot of really bad decisions, you know, blacking out, getting violent, getting aggressive with my friends. And one night, it's going to sound funny, but one night I tried to run all my friends over when I oh, was no. drunk. I did. I, they were telling me I'm out of control. I mustn't drive. And I started screaming at them, got in my car, put it in reverse and tried to run them over. They had to jump out the way. Oh my goodness. And then I, it was, it gets so much worse. <laughs> <laughs> so then it's raining. It's pouring with rain. I'm leaving. They used to own a club. So I'm leaving their club. I take a corner. What happens? It's raining. I drive straight into a golf course, oh straight into a golf course. And I have to phone those friends to come get me and to come help me so I don't get arrested. One that you were trying to run over. Yeah, the, the guys I was trying to run over had to come help me. <laughs> they were so scared to cross the road. I bet. Anyway, then I ended up in my, my first rehab the next day just for alcohol. And from there, things got really bad after that first day in rehab. So what made you go into rehab? Guilt. Guilt at how I behaved. I wanted, there was no, I didn't want to stop. I kind of went in to make my friends forgive me. And I went in to put my mother's mind at ease. I didn't do it for myself. I did for manipulative alternative, uh, like for reasons that were just to fix the situation. Like no one will be cross with me if I put myself in rehab. and then it's everything's fine. But then I went into rehab and I was there for one and I magically cured. Now I'm fine. I'm 100% fine now. But it's a good thing I left when I did. Because when I got out of rehab, you know, I mentioned earlier, I grew up with my three cousins, three girls. The one cousin, her name was Terry. She was my best friend. She was the world to me. We were the same age. We were just 10 months apart. And she encouraged me to go to that rehab. And when I came out, she came over to the house and she kept complaining of a really bad headache, a really bad headache she had. And long story short, that night when I got out, she ended up uh, at, in hospital in a coma with meningitis. Oh my goodness. And, yeah. and she passed away three weeks later after being in a coma what? for three weeks my she was the love she was the sweetest she left this world before this world could do her damage she was a beautiful beautiful soul she's too good for here but that's you know after that moment I was already in self-destruct mode destructive mode I was being manipulative I was becoming this person I didn't like and I even remember when Terry was in the coma, I was holding her hand and I was like, I promise you, I'm not going to drink and I'm not going to mess up again. I'm not going to, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. And as soon as she died, I did the opposite. I did the complete opposite. I almost used her death as an excuse to do worse things because I felt like the world owed me a favor. Like 
I had been through so much that it, because I went through a lot of other stuff, but I used Terry's death as an excuse to, to get on the drugs, to get on the meth, to make terrible decisions, because I felt like no one could tell me otherwise, because I just went through this. Instead of thinking for one second about my auntie, about my cousins, about my family, I made it about me, and I made it to fuel the addict, the addict that is sitting in my, that is here and has been here, you know? And so, I met a guy after that. Yeah. I come from um, a family of addiction. <clears throat> I myself have stayed away from everything because I watched everything. Um, yes. Horrible, horrible stuff. And I'm not really congratulating myself because I was actually afraid of it. I, yeah. you know, I, I watched so many horrible things and so much destruction that I was afraid to even try it because I knew, I knew that it was hereditary and I would, I would end up being an addiction. But so I have had my whole life growing up watching addiction and how it works. And I can, I can tell you from my siblings that I knew they found every kind of excuse there was to pick up that drink or go get, go get some meth or go get some coke mm-hmm. to cover up, but they made excuses for it. Like any, any little thing could happen, you know, that yeah, I, I stuff was little to me, but they use that as an excuse to go get their drug mm-hmm. choice. Any excuse, any excuse. You can have the most amazing day. That's an excuse to use. You can stub your toe on something and then it's, oh, I have to use. That was that was just, it was a bad day. I'm going to use. No matter what. It's almost like as an addict, I used to get happy when something bad happened because I had an excuse. Mm-hmm. And it's something I think a lot of people feel guilty about. And obviously I feel, well, felt amazing, like, horrible horrible guilt about it and every time I try to get sober that guilt would come up and it would be the cycle again where I want to get rid of the guilt so what do I do I start using so the only way to get through it is to face that guilt and to say and own it and say yes I did do that I did do that I was that person and I can move forward from that because I've made amends for that within myself with my family and with the memory of my cousin so you went into rehab. How long were you in rehab? So I went to rehab. So the first time um, was a week. And I was like, I'm done. I'm cured. And then I came out and then Terry died. Then after that, I started doing the drugs. I met a guy. As you, That's usually how it goes. You meet someone who I knew he was a drug addict as well. I do not blame him at all. I knew he was a drug addict. I knew he struggled with these issues. And I was like, I want that. I think addicts tend to attract addicts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I started using with him. And throughout that period, you know, obviously my mom noticed the decline. And that poor woman, if I tell you, I put her through hell. I put her through hell, like to the point that she still has PTSD from my behavior. Now, let me ask you this, just a second. So, you know, now that you put her through hell, um, 
did you know at the time you were doing it and did you see the effects that it was having on her and did you take any pleasure out of it? I saw the effects. I didn't take pleasure out of it. I just didn't care. If it got me to get the next fix, then it was worth it to me in that moment. So that's what I was going to ask you because I watched my siblings like my mom was just a mess when she knew, you know, they came home and they had been doing drugs or whatever. And, or she would go out looking for them at night in, mm. in the worst places in the city that she could have been hurt, you know, and, oh, it used to make me so mad that, that my siblings put her through that. But, and, and I would say something and that would give them more reason that, then it was like, oh, now they feel guilty. So then they went out and they did it again to cover yeah. up the guilt they were feeling for what they just put my mom through. Exactly. So was that ever any, I just wondered if, if you ever had that guilt afterwards and then use that guilt to go out and use again. I have a story that for me is quite a, it's a scary story and it's, it's hard to listen to, but the one day I had been at this guy's place for probably a few weeks, a week or whatever. And I came home to my mom's house and I got some money from her and I texted the dealer and she said he was going to meet me at this McDonald's that was around the corner. And my mom wouldn't let me out the house. She wouldn't? And I would, she, she wouldn't let me out the house. She was like, you're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. And she tried to lock the door. And as an addict, my drug came before anything else, anything. And I had to get out of the house. Well, my addict needed to get out the house and I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. The only thing I could do was physically assault my mother. And I took a, like a glass that you drink from and I threw it at her and it shattered on her leg, shattered all the way down her leg and cut her leg open. And at that moment, my brother came out. I also put him through hell. He came out and saw what I did and got on top of me and was like, what the fuck are you doing to mom? What are you doing to mom? What are you doing to yourself, to all of us? You know, you're, an, you're abusive. You're hurting us. And I kept like hitting him and saying horrible, horrible things to him. And all he did, he picked me up because I was, I was going mad. And mm -hmm. he threw me. And he's a strong guy. He's a very strong guy. And he threw me, but he didn't throw me hard. He threw me and I gave him. What did way. I see? For opportunity. Sorry? Like out of the way. He didn't yeah, like he threw me out to hurt you. Oh yeah, not at all. He yeah. threw me out of the way because I was I was attacking him. I was biting right. him. I was scratching him, like, you know. Right. So he threw me like tossed me out the way, and I saw it in that moment as an opportunity. So what did I do? I hit my head hard on the floor on purpose. Blamed my brother for it. Ended up telling my like everyone warrant my brother's abusing me and managed to get out the house to go get my drug of choice. Oh, wow. And it was these kinds of behaviors that you do. Like I obviously felt guilt for what I did to my mom, but in the time I would have done anything to get out the house. So I didn't feel the guilt then. Then I went, I got my drugs. I was numb for a while until I come down. And then I think, oh my God, I did this to my family. I did this to my family. And then, you so know, when, the cycle you, were, starts when again. you were, when you came down, you felt the guilt. Yes. Right. Only when I came home. Okay. 
So did your brother have any kind of addictions? My poor brother is like the most straight edge kind of guy. You know, he drinks on occasion. He doesn't even smoke cigarettes. He's, he's almost like the, uh, like a poster boy. You know, he's a very good looking guy. He does really well business wise. He's younger than me. He used to be, he was the, the head soccer player at school. He was top of his class, like all that kind of stuff. And then there was me. And I'm, and I'm older than him. And he had to grow up with that in the home. So he was always doing well, type A personality. And then there was me, the drug addict, the weirdo, the one with the mental health issues. And he had to navigate that space. So when he was about 18 years old, or even before that, he left the house and moved in with his girlfriend's family because of me. But he probably learned a lot from watching you. He learned what he didn't want to be, exactly like right. you were saying. Which is what happened to me. Yeah. A lot of people can go either way. Like if you grow up around that kind of stuff, you know what not to do. You know you don't want that. Or it goes, you know, it can go either way. And some people it can go, either go straight way. into it. It can yeah. go either way. And and I can tell you that it was some, you know, like I said, I'm I was very fearful of it. Um one time I had to make the choice and it was horrible and this is just to tell you on the other end of it so my my mom and dad ended up when I was older getting a divorce which was traumatic to not to me to go do drugs or alcohol um, but my my siblings did but he my dad was not he was an occasional drinker up until this happened and then he began drinking mm. and he became an alcoholic um long story short he decided he didn't want to live anymore if he couldn't be with my mom and his children and so he thought that he would just, so he went and he got a, a hotel room and he paid for it for five days and told them he didn't want any service and locked the indoor inside doors. And he bought all these bottles of booze and he was going to drink himself to death. Well, on the third day, one of the housekeepers, I, I guess they only have three days and then they have to like go in and, you know, put clean towels in or whatever. Um, but they tried to get in and couldn't, and he wasn't answering the door. So they got the hotel manager and they got the door open and he was about dead. So they called 911. And because I was at that time, I was 18, which considered me an adult and I was mm -hmm. And my mother was divorced from him, so that wasn't an option of them calling her. My older sister lived way across the United States, so she wasn't around. So I was the only one around of age. And they called me to the scene. And so they said to me, so first of all, at the time, it's against the law to take your own life. Okay. So we can either take him to jail now he's, he needs help. Like he's so drunk. He's out of it. Okay. Um, 
I, I believe he already had the alcohol poisoning going on. So he couldn't make that choice, but they weren't giving him that choice. They were making me make the choice. So they said, so we can take him to jail because he tried to commit suicide as far as they were concerned, but we'll only keep him a night. That's going to put him out on the street and right back where he started from. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're not going to give him anything in jail to help with that coming off, you know, down off that alcohol. Um, You can take him home with you. Well, I was just starting college and, you know, in a dorm room, I couldn't have him in there with me. Or, and at the time we had, we had state institutionalized uh, drug rehabilitation places. So that was the other choice. And I said, he's, he's got to go there. You know, he, he needs help with this. And, and it's not just this place wasn't just for alcohol. It was for drugs. It was for Alzheimer's. It was for schizophrenia. They had different wings, you know. And so I remember they put him into the ambulance and he kind of woke up and he saw me. And I said, Dad, you're going to get some help. Okay, you're going to be okay. And he apparently in his drunken stage or whatever, he still realized what I had done. And he looked at me and he said, you are no longer my daughter. I hate you for this. And I'll never, I'll never ever forget that moment when I didn't even want to make that decision, but I certainly didn't want him to die. Yeah. And that was the only choice that I could see that was the best for him. Um, so, so they took him away or whatever, you know, I did call my mom and I was crying and stuff and she did feel bad for me that I had to make that decision, but she thought that it was a good decision for him. Um, but after you have like two weeks where you can't speak to anybody like outside of, and so I was super excited after two weeks, I could go visit him and, you know, see how he was doing. And I showed up at the times they had given me. And they said, your name is not on the list. And I said, what do you mean? And I said, that must be a mistake. You need to call my dad and tell him I'm here. And they came back and said, he doesn't want to see you. And he was, so he had to be in there six weeks at least. And those six weeks, he would not see me. Every week I went and he would not see me. And that reiterated that. I was no longer his daughter and they hated me. Um, But he started then doing the 12 step program and so on Mm -hmm. and so forth. And I was the first person that he came to after he, he decided to stay longer than six weeks. Um, I think he ended up staying almost six months by the time he went to a halfway house. And, um, but I was the first person that he came to and he, said, I want you to know that I am so sorry that I put you through that. And I never quit loving you ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to make a long story short, he ended up, he, he never drank again, but he ended up being a sponsor and not just a sponsor, but a spokesperson for AA all over the United States. And the story that he told always included me. 
how much he hurt me, but how I made that decision for him to begin with. I'm going to stop crying. Sorry. (laughs) Um, And many times he invited to introduce me, like on his anniversary date, he would introduce me and say, this is the person that is responsible. And I remember always saying, no, I might have started it, but you completed it. He still had that choice. Exactly. I mean, after the six weeks was done. So when you went into rehab, did you have a choice? (laughs) You know the story you just told? Yeah. Reverse the roles. (laughs) So I've been to rehab a few times and every time I went was to appease my mother. My parents were also divorced at this point. They got divorced when I was older. Um, I put my mom through hell. She saw a lot of it. And she she would put me in rehab. You know, I went two two more times after my cousin died. And I came out and relapsed all the time. And this last time I went, I went to my dad's house to try to get money from him. So, you know, and I was like, oh, mom's not giving me money. She thinks that I'm on drugs again or whatever. And he was like, okay just go to the bathroom. So I went to the bathroom and he locked me in the bathroom and he phoned uh, a rehab. One I hadn't been to before one that was a lot tougher than the other ones I had been to. And he said, he was like, listen, my daughter's got anorexia. She's on meth and a drug called cat, which is in South Africa. And the counselor said, you better take her here tomorrow. We've got an open bed because it sounds like she's going to die. And my dad then took me the next day I tried to jump out on the freeway on the highway oh my god yeah he had the um he had uh, like child lock on in the car so I couldn't get out and he dropped me there it was the first time he ever got involved in that part of my life and he dropped me there and I was like I hate you I hate you you mean nothing to me all of you I hate you I want nothing to do with you and I had a lot of resentment to my mom because she told my dad about this and I went into this new rehab that I didn't know how to kind of cheat the system. And all the counselors there were recovering addicts as well. And, you know, you can't bullshit a bullshitter. So all my manipulation fell on deaf, deaf ears right. there because they, they were like, oh, we've done this. We know what you're saying. Anyway, when I was on the inside there, I thought I was going for four weeks. And on my second week in there, I went into pre-renal failure. My kidneys stopped working properly. Ended up in, yeah, ended up in high care at a hospital. And I still wanted to relapse when I was there. If I'd had my phone, I would have messaged the dealer or my ex-boyfriend and said, come get me. I want to go use. That's how much I didn't care. Then I told them I don't want to see anyone from my family I don't want my mom to visit me I don't want my father to visit me I don't want my brother to visit me at this point my brother wouldn't have visited me anyway but I was like I hate all of them I hate them they mean nothing to me I just want to live my life do what I like and die you know I don't want anything to do with these people how dare they put me in this situation I also didn't feel like I had a choice because my dad would say to me I'm going to get you sectioned to go in or else I'm phoning the police you know which so is when the we right say thing section, that, is that like a court order? Yes. Like we would call yeah. a court order? Okay. Exactly, exactly. 
um so he said he would do that so I was like okay I'm just gonna go to this you know I didn't want to be there I didn't go there with the intention of getting clean I didn't go there wanting it just like your dad you know I didn't want it I didn't want it but on so I went back to the rehab after I was in hospital and then they told me I'm staying there for eight weeks and I was so mad at my dad I was so mad at him I was like I you know I'm gonna I'm gonna check myself out I'm gonna check myself out but then one day everything changed and I'm sure your dad experienced you know a moment where things changed and it wasn't this big massive spiritual awakening or anything like that Mm -hmm. I was sitting in group with a bunch of my peers, a bunch of addicts, and my counselor who was is a recovering addict. And I was telling her my story and bringing up all the past traumas I've been through, um, stuff I haven't touched on here, but like a lot of other stuff. And I brought up my cousin. And I was like, my cousin died. She was my best friend. She was the one who was there for me after everything I went through. And then, you know, she died. And instead of, you know, giving into that kind of manipulative behavior, my counselor looked at me and she said, how does it feel to have disrespected the memory of your cousin? And it was the harshest thing anyone had ever said to me, but it was the truest thing anyone had ever said to me. And I sat in this chair and I was like, I'm going to kill this woman. I'm going to kill her. Mm -hmm. But instead of reacting, I just sat with it. And I was like, for the first time in a long time, I became self-aware. And I was like, that is what I did. I'm not the victim in this situation. I am not the victim. And that's when things changed for me. And that's when the 12 steps came in. And that's when I really started doing the 12 steps in that rehabilitation center. And the people I went to when I started to really wanted to apologize to were my mom and were my dad, because that's what I needed to do. You know, they got me there. So I want to ask you something. Um, I ended up when I was going through college, getting my degree in psychology. And what I wanted to do was work with drug addicts and alcohol, alcoholics. Um, And my very first job after, after I got my degree, I was hired from the state and I had to work with court ordered drug addicts and alcohol Mm. that was probably the worst position I could have taken um and I'm gonna tell you two reasons why number one they didn't want to be there okay exactly it wasn't a choice it was court ordered so they were pissed off anyway number Mm -hmm. two they found out that I wasn't an addict so to them, because I wasn't an addict, I had no idea what they was going through. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter that I lived it all of my life. I watched it all of my life. I experienced the other side of it. They said, you don't know. Um, and I was not mean about stuff. I was trying, you know, I, I tried to use mm-hmm. a totally different method that what, so I told, um, my boss I said you know I don't know that I'm right for this position because I walk in and I can't get them in order they they cuss at me they laugh at me you know I'm I'm not doing any good here he said let me bring another counselor in with you it was a male who was 
an addict. Mm-hmm. Okay. Recovering, obviously, but an addict. And he came in and he was, all right, you guys sit the fuck down. <laughs> okay. I was not, I was like, could you guys please sit down now? We're going to go ahead and start. He came in and said, sit the fuck down. Everybody sat down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and anytime somebody, and then he's like, okay, you, you, and you in there, we're doing a drug test. And I was like, if, if you guys feel like the need to drink or take a drug, call me, I'll talk to you. I was the nice person. Mm. So I'm bringing that up because the woman that spoke to you did what she was supposed to do. She was, she was able to, even though it might've seemed cruel at the time. She hit home. She saved my life. Mm-hmm. She saved my life. I get emotional talking about her because she's still a big part of my life today. Oh, that's um, wonderful. Oh, she's an amazing woman. Amazing woman. She she saved my life. And it's so it's it's weird because now, you know, as she's further in her recovery, she's a lot gentler. She is a lot gentler and she's got this like softer approach. But I think for someone like me who was so long-term in addiction and someone who was so manipulative and just so full of rage that I needed that so desperately. I needed someone to not be scared of me. I needed Mm -hmm. someone to say it as it is and someone who would literally look me in the eye and not flinch. Right. And that's what I got from her. All the other rehabs I went to, they were lovely people. Like you were saying, like really kind and really empathetic. Um, But as an addict, I used that to my advantage. I was like, I can manipulate them. Because, you know, it's easy. I'll just manipulate them. And I needed that really hard, hard counseling in the beginning. And obviously, as I moved through and, you know, did the, did the, long, the long stay in rehab, then went to the uh, halfway house and then went to sober living. When I did all of that, you know, people could be a lot kinder because I was willing to accept kindness on a genuine level. In the, well, how before, long of a time period are you talking about from day one until you actually it was it was basically three years of treatment if I think about it so it was like wow um like that about six months in a primary care facility so in primary rehab then I went to secondary which is still rehab but it's like you can go out at certain times mm-hmm. and then halfway house which is kind of really getting you back right, into the swing of things and then we yes. have the sober houses. So I was in the halfway house for a year. Sorry? And we also have sober houses that you can, after the halfway house. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I did. That's what I did. Oh, you I did? did that. And that was, yeah, yeah. I did this. I did halfway house and then sober house. And then even after the sober house, me and my boyfriend at the time, who was also in recovery at that point, which I don't recommend anyone. No, you're not supposed to do that, are you? Yeah, don't do that. Guys. Yeah, that's a bad thing. Yeah, and our friend who we were staying in the sober house with got our own place and created our own sober house. Oh, so, nice. so it was very long term. Yeah, nice. You know, I know I know some people now today that don't even want to move out of a sober house. Well, I was no. so scared to leave. I was so terrified to leave. But you don't really have to, do you? No. Yeah. No. Like stay there forever if you want. It's such a nice environment. And if you're, you know, the reason I left was because 
we were going to create our own one anyway. It was mm-hmm. the same people going to a safer environment that was closer to work. So it just felt better going there. And we did it so slowly. Like I really reintegrated into society so slowly and on my terms in what I was comfortable with. And even after that, when me and um, that boyfriend broke up, I went to another sober house afterwards because I knew I couldn't be alone. So from that, when we weren't really in a sober house, we were just living together. When that ended, I went straight back to another sober house. And then when I was ready to leave there, I got my own place. And it was a really long process of trusting the process and doing the next right thing for myself every day, you know, just trying every day to do the next right thing. So first of all, I want to say, um, I'm so proud of you. I, I know that you had help there, but you still have that final choice. You know what I'm saying? As and and your counselor or whatever you called the lady, what 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 was she, was she a counselor? counselor? Okay, yeah. Um, even though she really hit home with you and she got your attention, and as you said, saved your life. I give her credit for that for being a good counselor, but you still made that choice. So she said that to me all the time. She said she came to my 10 year share. So I gave a share. My 10 years was um, on the 27th of April and I did a share at one of the NA meetings and she came there and she was like, when she shared on it, she was like, you did it. I might've said something to you, but you did it. And I was like, I love you. (laughs) She's so nice. Yeah. And that's so important to remember that not, you know, not to take away from the person that began, you know, to help you or, or that struck that, you know, made that light go off in your brain or whatever it was, but you still made that final choice. So congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. so. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. Thank you so much. And I love those kind of stories. Now, you lifted up your arm. So I got to see these beautiful tattoos. Is there stories behind each one of them? Not really. So I cross-addicted to tattoos. Um, but the first tattoo I got, I was 14. And I was drunk on a beach with my friend. And for some reason, we wandered into a tattoo shop and the tattoo artist allowed himself to tattoo 14-year-old drunk girls. So I got this tiny tattoo on my hip. And then when my cousin died, we all got a small tattoo for her on our back. Me, my brother, my auntie, uh, her kids, everyone. And that was it. That's all I had. And then in... (laughs) Then in recovery, you know, you put down the drugs, you put down the alcohol. I was went straight for tattoos. And in within six months, I finished this whole sleeve and then this whole sleeve and then my leg and then my sides. <laughs> they look cup. gorgeous. I, I think my very first one, now I only have them hidden. My, my story is a lot like Jason. I, I also grew up Catholic. And um, anyway, that was kind of frowned upon. Yeah. Mine, I was... (laughs) Did you get in trouble, your first one? Oh, so much. Oh, my my mom is angry about it. Look at me, and she still hasn't accepted it. (laughs) Yeah, I can... I 
could imagine. Yeah. Because aren't you Jewish? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. My whole family's Jewish. Yeah. I don't practice, yeah. but my mom, woo, she hates them. <laughs> yeah. So, well, and both of my kids have some, but I had to talk to them because they were going into, when they went through college, they were going into business and there's meant, you know, the kind of businesses that they were going into, they would have not, they were like, it was marketing where they would be in front of yeah. a lot of people and have to speak and stuff. And I don't have anything against them, but many, many people don't look at it as such a nice thing. So there's yeah. a lot of jobs that you can miss out on, you know, if you're full of tattoos. So what I said to them, I, I, can't, I have two. I did have three, but I have two and, and they're both on my hip. So one's, one's a really pretty butterfly and the other one is a, a, a beetle, a ladybug, oh, cute. I should say, a oh, ladybug. Cute. And, you know, they can't be seen unless I take my clothes off. Um, yeah. And then I am, I am wanting to get a invisible one on, on my wrist for my mom that passed away. Um. And I'm making it invisible because she hates tattoos. <laughs> but you know, I, it's going to be wings, angel wings. So maybe, maybe you forgive me, right? Um, but my anyway, mom made promise her that when she dies, she won't get one. I won't yeah. get one for her. So both my kids, I said, um, obviously, I can't say anything about it. You know, my first one I did. Um, I was a cheerleader and we went to a cheerleading competition out of town. We only had our cheerleading coach with us. It was actually my senior year. I was 17, but all the other girls had already turned 18. So it was actually legal age to get them, except for me. Except for me. I was the youngest one. I wasn't going to turn 18 for another month. However, once the guy looked at two of two of the driver's license, yeah, he just went, you know, okay. So he didn't even bother mm-hmm. with me. Um, but regardless of all that, um, we each got the very same thing. And that was our butterfly because we won the competition and we're like, we're free and we're getting out of school. And, you know, so like butterflies are free. They fly around and they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so we got that. And uh, of course, none of our parents knew. But three weeks, I think I even forgot about it, but three weeks later, so I, w- I was in the shower and we did have two room, two bathrooms that were full bathrooms, um, but I was in the shower. My mom knocked on the door and she said, you know, Christy, I need to get in. I need to use the restroom. Huh. Like, we got another one. But I never even, I forgot about that. I mean, it was healed. It was, you know, whatever. You couldn't mm-hmm. see it. I didn't even think about that. So I, you know, reached out of the shower and I unlocked the door and let her in, whatever. And she did her thing. And I get out and she's plucking her eyebrows in the mirror. And so from in the mirror, I, I had like my back to her and I was drying off and she saw that tattoo. And she said, what? did you do and how you were not yeah you're not old enough you she was very pissed however and I don't want to say this because I wasn't really a smart aleck or I wasn't trying to be I just said I mean what are you going to do now ground me 
Like, you, you, you know what I'm saying? It, it wasn't a, all over the place. It wasn't, but ground me, it's, it's not going to take it away. And, and at yep. that time you couldn't cover them. You know, they, they didn't do that. So it was there, it was permanent, you know? <laughs> so I didn't mean to say that sarcastically. I guess it kind of was, but it was the truth. You know, what are you going to do now? It's, it's there, it's done. And I didn't have them all over. So I just told my kids the same thing. I said, if you're going to go into business, you know, you might want to check out some of the companies that you want to do because they may not allow that. Or you might want to put them where, you know, you're going to wear something that is covered. And it's not a discriminatory thing here. I mean, a company can decide your uniform you know, and that kind of stuff. They just can't, you know, go on race, color, religion, you know, but they, they can say, you know, well, if you've got tattoos and you're going to be, you know, speaking out in public, that can, and they can say no. So I said, just be careful. Just be careful. So I don't say don't get them. Just, just remember what you're going into. And if you can cover them when you're at work. I would say that to everyone. Honestly, I would say that to everyone. Like, there is a lot of um, hate that you get with tattoos. There really is, and you have to be aware it's going to happen. And it is. It's going to happen. For me, I can walk out the street, and some people will be like, I love your tattoos, and other people will run away, you know, just hate me based on my tattoos. To me, it looks like you have these beautiful sleeves on. Everyone says that about this arm specifically. It looks like a little sleeve. It I love, really I love does. It. It's very pretty. This arm is like, it's like my soft arm. Like it's got a lot of uh, filigree and roses and like this pretty lady. Yeah, who is that lady? Arm, she's just a random design. She's just a little Very peanut. pretty. She's cute. I love her. You must and have some very arm, good artists there. It's my boyfriend at this. Really? Well, okay, this is a true story. This is my ex-boyfriend. Okay. This is my new (laughs) And it was not on purpose. It was not on purpose. And they don't (laughs) remind you of of each one of them? No, this this I have no emotional attachment to at all. You know, it was a really, it's a project. This is the design I wanted. He just happened to have done it. Okay. Um, There's also no hatred or resentment you know, toward him either. And yeah. then when we broke up, me and this guy, I needed another tattoo artist. And there was this person on Instagram who all my friends knew. And I didn't even know, I didn't even know what he looked like. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, it's safe. I don't know what he looks like. I don't know who he is. It's, let me go to this person, no relationship there. And I went there and I fell in love. <laughs> <laughs> is that who you're with now? Yeah, this is my boyfriend, this whole sleeve. Oh my goodness. This is my Wednesday Adams, Bride of Frankenstein, Vampira. So this is like my dark sleeve. There's Maleficent over there. So, okay. Yeah. That's very cool. Okay. <laughs> so it, it, we need to wrap this up. And I, yes. I, I have a huge question to ask you. And it's okay if there's more than one answer, but if you can get it all into one, that'd be great. What do you feel like has been your biggest life struggle? 
in terms of everything I've been through, in terms of the trauma, some stuff I haven't even mentioned, you know what the biggest struggle for me has been? It's the, it's going to sound, and I need to explain why, but it's the body dysmorphic disorder. Okay. For me, that is the one thing I still fight every single day is looking in a mirror, looking at my face. This has nothing to do with my body and not seeing what other people see, genuinely not seeing it. And so you don't see how some, beautiful you are? You know what? Like, and it sounds, people get so frustrated. Like my boyfriend is struggling with it at the moment. Is I've been good for a really long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I put down the drugs, put down the alcohol, finally beat the eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And that one thing, that one thing is still with me. And it's the, the not seeing myself in the mirror properly. And it's this focus on my face. And I don't, I, I, I struggle with it. I struggle with it. And I struggle with accepting that I can't see myself the way people do. And I think people are lying to me, but I know that they're not, you mm-hmm. know, I know that they're not. And it's this big struggle in my brain in terms of my mental health that I am working through now. That is my final battle now. So in terms of the drugs, the anorexia, everything, um, drugs were the easiest to put down in comparison to the anorexia. And in once I put the anorexia down, the body dysmorphic disorder that I struggled with from the age of nine is now back. And it's something I'm dealing with, something I'm working through. So in terms of mental health, that is definitely my biggest struggle. But in terms of life in general, it would be the hardest thing for me to do was accept traumas, certain traumas, and to face my guilt and shame about what I did in active addiction. But I did both of those. And I'm proud of doing both of those. Congratulations. And I've both- Congratulations. One of the reasons that I started Life Struggles um, the people that I choose to interview are ones that have a very hard life struggle, but has con- conquered them. And I want yes. them to share their story so that they give other people hope that they too can conquer these struggles. So I appreciate you saying that you have conquered and that, you know, and we're always going to have a new life exactly. struggle as we go along. Um, it's it's how we handle it as we go. So um, are you still, are you, are you in any kind of counseling or do you just do this on your own now? I go to NA meetings twice a week. Mm-hmm. So I still do Narcotics Anonymous. It's a huge part of my life. It's something I'm very passionate about. I do a lot of service in the NA community. So I run some meetings. I'm the GSR at some meetings. I've got my sponsees and that for me is my biggest form of, you know, self-help and helping others and giving back. So that's where my heart is. In terms of therapy, I am actually seeking therapy now, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, just to deal with the body dysmorphic disorder. And what I like to say is, for the first time in my life, I'm aware of it, which means that I am overcoming it that's because good. I am facing it. Yes, that's and good. Exactly. And like, we need to take those steps. So I know, hey, I've been struggling with this. This is something I need to deal with. I'm going to do something about it as uncomfortable as it is. If I could put down the drugs, if I can put down the alcohol, and if I can beat anorexia, which is the hardest out of 
everything to I work can't through. even imagine. Sorry. Oh, I just said I, I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Because yeah. I had that high metabolism that I was always so skinny, that was ugly to me. I got bullied for that. Yeah. I had, you know, in, in high school, boys would come up to me and I didn't even know this famous model because she was way older, but they would call me Twiggy. I know Twiggy, yeah. But I didn't. I didn't, mm. you know, and, it, and the way they said it, it sounded bad, you know, mm. and they were the same thing. Oh, you're so skinny. And then they'd go twiggy, twiggy. I didn't know what that meant. I thought it was like, like a stick, you know, mm. um, and, and I didn't, you know, my mom had her own, you know, there was all the kids at home and she had her own stuff going on with, you know, their marriage and whatever. So I didn't go home and, and cry about it to anybody. You know, I just kind of held it inside and whatever. But each day I felt myself going into a darker place and each day I fought it. And finally, one day I'm like, I got to tell my mom, I've got to tell her because I don't understand what this Twiggy is. Mm. And so when I, when I told my mom, my dad happened to be there standing there and uh, he said, you don't know who Twiggy is? And I said, no. And he said, she's actually a very famous model. And he said, so I'm going to tell you two things. One, boys don't tease girls unless they like them. He said, if they didn't like you, they would ignore you. They'd completely ignore you. I don't know if I believe all that, but at the time, it made me feel a little bit better. And then he said, number two, Twiggy is a very famous model. And the next time that they say that to you, just say, thank you. They were giving you a compliment. You look like a model. Like, okay, that worked. That worked for me. As soon as soon as I quit reacting to what they were saying, they stopped. Yeah. Um, But I wanted to, I, I, one thing I wanted to leave with you, and it's something that, that I give to the people that I'm counseling, especially for those who, um, have the same thing. I I have it too. I don't, I have to remind myself every day of who I am. And, you know, I I don't know if you can see this, but I have a scar on my nose here and that's my face. And I have, and it's not people that are trying to be rude, but when they see it up close, they think I've been in an accident of some kind. And the first thing they say is, oh my gosh, you poor thing. Were you in an accident? So it's noticeable. It's brought to my attention all the time. Okay. I actually had a little bit of skin cancer, which was just a pinpoint, but this surgeon took out a great big piece of my nose and then was going to leave it. And I'm like, what? This is my face. I mean, like when somebody's talking to you, the first thing they see is your face Mm -hmm. and he said, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, you better call a plastic surgeon. And this yeah. plastic surgeon, this is, I had 18 times that he's tried to fix this and he's wow. made it worse each time and quit. He, he like started canceling my appointments because he only that first one did my insurance cover. And after that, I mean, it was, it was him not doing it correctly. 
So it was money out of his pocket. And so he would cancel my appointments and like the girl would call me and say, um, he had an emergency surgery he had to do. You'll have to reschedule and it'd be three or four months down the road. Well, he was actually taking women that were paying, you know, to have other So it's never been properly fixed, but I've now found somebody. So anyway, I struggle with that on a daily basis. I have little yellow stickers that I put on my mirror when I'm going to put my makeup that says you are beautiful inside and out. Just kind of a reminder thing. So I don't, I don't know if that's something that you can, I kind of have, I have some on the refrigerator. (laughs) I need to do that. And you know what? My boyfriend suggested I do something like that. Did he? It, it he really, did. You'd be surprised how well it works because the way the mind is, if something is repeated and repeated and repeated, eventually your brain accepts that. Yeah. So, and, and I've learned that, you know, I have learned that with the eating disorder recovery. And if I apply that to the body dysmorphia and yeah. to the spinal thing, I know I can get it right. I know I can. You can. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. I, I know it's been a little bit of a struggle here to get together, but I'm I so really hope I can meet you someday. I've got some plans um, of coming. I can't really say it out loud on here. Don't. So don't. I won't. But I'm going to go ahead and end it here. And I do hope to meet you someday, though. And I'll probably get this done and ready. And be it'll be published next Monday. Amazing. And I will meet you soon because I think I want to come down and meet you. I want to meet Jace. I want to. I really do need to. You know get what? That are you going to L.A.? I, I want to. Where are you? Okay. Well, I'm in Chicago. But. But. I want to meet up with, with Jay too. And so if, if I know the time you're going, I'll fly out there at the same time. Yay. I'll, I'll figure it out and I'll, we'll and we'll, it yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have a big get together. That would be so nice. Oh, that would be so nice. Okay. Well, I so much appreciate you and you have done an amazing job. Amazing job. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you for being amazing and for being in my life. And I'm so glad to have met a woman like you. Thank you. Thank you.